0: Greetings and welcome to the Net Positive podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive features Econet News, August 31st, 2021, Volume 23, Issue Number 8. Flanagan's Ecologic, a New York-Vermont travel log, landed at JFK. Terry and I immediately felt the deep and pervasive heat and humidity as we disembarked and headed up the jetway. Yes, it's an East Coast summer. It's August 7th, 11 p.m., Long Island after lots of rain. Travel mix-ups and delays, and we meet Brother Bill and Kathy at JetBlue arrivals after midnight. But we're in good time for Mom's 91st birthday on August 9th. Forty minutes later, what a relief when we hit the Pebble driveway in Oyster Bay, away from the airport throngs, away from the intensity of the Van Wyck and the Long Island Expressways, shedding the hustle of travel. Long day. I kill the engine and we're struck by a symphony. The insect chorus. It's loud and pervasive and lovely. The chorus is largely made up of katydids and crickets. Order Orthopterans. Cicadas apparently do their singing in broad daylight. What a sound, the sound of the night insects. These are true songs in the biological sense. They are sung to attract mates. Birthday preparations all. Digital tiny house images stream in from Snowmass. Enlarging, framing, wrapping, buying ingredients and baking. It's great to see and hang with family. Our first time in nearly two years. We attempted little else except for an exciting meeting in the Bronx. Off to market with mom. A couple dips in my uncle's pool. Simple and special moments. A wonderful family tribute to mom's 91st birthday with her three sons coming from Colorado, Vermont, and California. COVID bagged any chance of a 90th celebration. This year, a backlong birthday party for mom, with two of her three siblings, the fourth in Maine for the summer. Two of my local cousins shored up the family ranks. How very fortunate. Drinks, hors d'oeuvres, a few gifts. We do it up a bit, complete with a few tearful toasts. Time to drive north to Vermont to see my brother Russell's family. Viridus montes is Latin for green mountains. Vert monte is the French derivation for Vermont. Full on summer in the green mountain state it is. There are big clouds and periodic rain. It's as green as it gets. A lush landscape that will turn into a bonfire of colors in fall. And then white and bleak in the dark days of winter. I honk as we cross the border from Massachusetts into Vermont. We gas up in Springfield, Vermont. My brain eases as we pass forests and farms. We turn on to Interstate 89 in White River, two hours north to Burlington. Our rental climbs up the Richmond Hill and to its top in Williston. We're 10 miles out. From there, you can see Vermont's biggest city, Burlington, high on a plain overlooking the Lake Champlain Valley. Love the flood of college memories for the next few days as we drive around Burlington and past the University of Vermont and the Billings Student Center. Route 7 south for about 12 miles past Shelburne, Past a dairy with a massive solar array, then turning off at the Charlotte Ferry Road, we rented a camp in Charlotte right on Lake Champlain. A cabin, rough and plain, down some rickety, read treacherous steps. To the water, I jump in, fresh, fresh water, and lots of it. This camp defines funky. Its deck is its selling point. Aloft in the trees, looking out over the lake, western New York, and north to Vermont. Water pressure? Certainly not. I had to buy and install a new showerhead to replace the one that fell to pieces on the shower floor. Later in the week, Russell, Aiden, and Kieran bring their motorboat down to the camp and its dock. Terry and I get a high-speed tour of that part of the lakefront, thanks to our captain, Kieran. Camel's Hump is Vermont's third highest mountain at 4,081 feet, following Mount Mansfield and Killington. On board for the climb is my brother Russell, who would later grin and say that that was his first and last trek up that mountain, his son Jake and Aiden, Terry and I. The trail was tough with ha- incessant haphazard rocks, roots, and mud. Lots of great conversation with Jake made picking our way up the mountain a great pleasure for Terry and I. Jake brought and gave Terry his hiking poles. We pause in the saddle. It's only 20 minutes to the top from there. We summit, and being on top of the hump, As always is thrilling. We packed a gourmet trail lunch and our deserving crew devoured it. We take pictures. We watch clouds drift by and enjoy the view to the west of Lake Champlain and the Adirondacks. To the east are the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Time for the second half of this adventure. We pick our way down the rocky trail slowly for hours. At the trailhead, I see a plaque honoring the work of Hub Vogelman. A botanist and conservation leader, I was lucky enough to have as professor and advisor at UVM. He passed away in 2013. Hubb is recognized for focusing the nation's attention on the threat of acid rain. He's, he did his research on camel's hump, tracking the status of the red spruce. Measurements were taken by his students in the 1960s and then a decade later, showing a shocking decline in the well-being of the trees, including a loss of half of the spruce. His article in Natural History, Catastrophe on Camel's Hump, drew strong reactions from scientists across the nation and raised awareness about acid rain. Saying goodbye to the boys. We have an outdoor and farewell dinner in Burlington at Farm Fresh Restaurant, everything local, including the booze. Good times. Later we enjoy s'mores and get a house tour at, at Jake and Molly's home. We're so impressed by this young couple who are rebuilding their home. The new covered porch is really nice. The next morning, Russ makes us egg white and spinach breakfast sandwiches. We say our final goodbyes and head south. We do detoured in Williston to check on the farmhouse where I lived when I was in grad school, reportedly the oldest house in Williston. Yes, it's still standing, sporting a fresh coat of paint to boot. Memories flood my brain again, saunas, music, the mud people. Back to Oyster Bay for another night and visit with Mom, and then into Brooklyn to visit daughter Stephanie. We take the Long Island Expressway, affectionately known as the Distress Way, then hit the Brooklyn Queens Expressway south into Brooklyn near the majestic Brooklyn Bridge. We're staying at the Marriott and park way underground. Stephanie's got a great apartment. It's quite tiny. She keeps it so neat and well appointed, she's painted an accent wall. We have lunch at a hip cafe nearby and then walk to the waterfront to ferry over to Governor's Island for an afternoon concert and throwback party, costumes. Classy jazz and swing, prime people watching. Then back to the piers. We walk and explore. The masses are out, enjoying the waterfront and the sunny summer day. Brooklyn has created a wonderful urban park, repurposing several piers no longer needed for commercial shipping. One pier has been converted to to being a clearly popular recreation center with basketball, handball, volleyball, etc. Lots going on. A mix of people with a common love of exercise and the outdoors. Another pier is now a grassy park. There's a barbecue area with tables along the waterfront. Vibrant. Boats on the river. Helicopters in the air. The massive bridges. There's lots of diversity here. And a common theme of enjoying the sunny skies, the fresh air, and the splendor at hand. We're impressed by this part of Brooklyn. The busy East River with the full downtown skyline of Manhattan in our view. We celebrate Terry's birthday with a dinner at Chaconis in Dumbo, down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass outdoors, and just off the promenade along the river. We're so close to the Manhattan Bridge that the rumble of the MTA trains that cross the river on the bridge periodically drowns out our conversations. There's lots of boating action on the river, sunset cruises, even jet skis dwarfed by the urban scale. Sunsetting, ideal table, great food, nice toast, the perfect end to our short and fulfilling East Coast trip. Quote of the Week The main cause of the climate emergency is fossil fuels. Coal, oil, and gas are responsible for almost 80% of all carbon dioxide emissions since the Industrial Revolution. Phasing out fossil fuel production and fast-tracking progress towards safer and more cost-effective alternatives will require unprecedented international cooperation. Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Language, calling for non-proliferation fair phase-out and just transition. Fossil-free steel. SSAB claims to have produced the world's first fossil-free steel, created with green hydrogen instead of coal and coke. The green steel was delivered to the Swedish auto manufacturer Volvo, where it will be used to create prototype electric vehicles. Coal-based steel production accounts for 7 to 9 percent of global greenhouse gas production. To address this concern, the Swedish Hybrid Partnership was formed between SSAB, LKAB, and Vattenfall. Hybrid aims to replace coking coal, traditionally needed for the production of steel, with renewable electricity and hydrogen. It is now making fossil free steel at its plant in Lulea in northern Sweden. Commercial production is slated to begin in 2026. Using the hybrid steel technology, SSAB expects to cut Sweden's total CO2 emissions by 10% and Finland's total emissions by 7%. According to Inceptive Mind, Arkelor Metal is building a zero-carbon emission steel plant in Sestau, Spain. Gates Notes presents Boston Metals in Massachusetts that is working on a carbon-free steel-making process as well. The conventional process to make steel is a chemical reaction. A blast of air goes in, and passes over a form of carbon and converts it to a carbon monoxide gas. That gas reduces the iron oxide to iron by taking away its oxygen. In the process, carbon monoxide gains an oxygen and becomes CO2. Instead, Boston Metals uses a process called molten oxide electrolysis. It uses electricity instead of carbon from coal. The passage of an electric current causes the iron oxide to decompose, leaving liquid iron. The process only emits oxygen, no CO2. Boston Metals is on a path to make the green steel better, cleaner, and cheaper. Drone Delivery Services An article headline caught my eye. Wing's Drone Delivery Service Hits 100,000 Delivery Milestone. Really? Are drones consistently delivering? Is this technology commercialized? What about theft? What about things being broken? I learn about leading drone delivery initiatives and wonder, what will our neighborhoods look like with unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, on the loose? Here's how the Australian wing drone delivery system works. Wing drones have six miles of flight radius, thus quick trips. The drone flies to a home or business with its package and then descends to 23 feet. At that point, it lowers the package to the ground and releases the package on the ground. In Logan, Australia, near Brisbane, its 110,000 inhabitants in the past six months have received more than 50,000 deliveries by Wing drones. That includes more than 10,000 cups of fresh barista-made coffee and more than 1,200 hot chooks, Australian for roasted chicken. Wing has partnered with Walgreen and FedEx, as well as local businesses, currently operating in four locations. Christianburg, Virginia, Helsinki, Finland, Canberra, and Logan City in Australia. The Wing drones have 12 vertical rotors and two wings and can fly like a plane and take off and land like a helicopter. Combined with test flights, Wing has had nearly a half million drone flights, and it has no concerns with delivering fragile objects like eggs. UPS Flight Forward was the first company to earn commercial drone delivery approval in the United States. It began delivering medical supplies for a hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. UPS is now partnered with CVS to deliver prescription medicines to residents of The Villages, a Florida retirement community with 135,000 residents. UPS also partnered with WingCopter, which deploys drones for humanitarian applications, such as medical air services. Based in Germany, it began as a drone manufacturer and is now offering delivery services. It has partnered with UNICEF for vaccine delivery in ro- remote areas of Vanuatu. Prime Air delivery is planned by Amazon. Prime Air will deliver packages up to 5 pounds in weight in less than 30 minutes. After earning FAA approval in 2020, Amazon Prime Air has been testing its drone delivery platform at development centers in the U.S., U.K., Australia, France, and Israel. Flytrex delivers packages up to 6.6 pounds per restaurants. It started in Israel in 2013, then began delivering groceries and other goods in Reykjavik, Iceland. It also tested programs in North Dakota and North Carolina. Walmart has announced that it will be using Flytrex drones as part of a pilot program in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Flirty is an independent drone service that helps businesses unlock new markets. Zipline is a San Francisco-based company with the mission of delivering critical and life-saving products. Boeing is also in the drone delivery business, focused on larger, unmanned cargo air vehicles. Microgrids 1.9, Microgrid Perspectives. Peter Asmus, Research Director at Guidehouse Insights, has been tracking the development of microgrids for a dozen years. He's written 100 plus articles on microgrids. In a recent episode of the Net Positive podcast, he talks about the genesis of microgrids, For the most part, they originated out of necessity in the developing world. Many, if not most, microgrids in the world today are not connected to the grid. But now, microgrids are coming of age in the developed world, where there is a grid. They operate in parallel with the grid for resilience. Asmuth noted that initially, Europe scoffed at that concept because its grid was and still is so reliable. But today, given extreme climate events throughout the world, including recent and devastating flooding in Europe, And thanks to the dramatic drops in solar and storage prices, coupled with smart control technologies, microgrids make sense in many applications and locations. In some cases, they can pay for themselves through daily operations, they can be financed. Microgrids have come a long way. In the podcast, Asmuth talks about barriers to the implementation of microgrid. He characterizes the state of microgrids as inching along to full commercialization. He notes that yes, There's lots of activity. Lots of microgrids are providing values, but he explains that microgrids are held back in some ways. Deployment is still hampered to some extent by old-school monopoly rules, like the -the over-the-fence rule. In most states, you cannot run a line over the fence and power your neighbor's property, not even during an outage. That will change in time. Another factor at play is, is a utility culture inherently rooted and opposed to distributed generation and storage, and by extension, microgrids. Differing rules and varying decisions on interconnection has challenged timely engineering and installation. The engineers that install and hook up microgrids say that we need to clarify and ease the interconnection process. Asmuth notes that we are moving towards modular microgrid architecture, plug-and-play style, and all UL listed and approved to make interconnection a smooth process. Regulatory proceedings are underway. But policies are not yet set on how to really capture the value of microgrids to society as a whole. Asimuth explains that it's not just the value of a microgrid to the winery or warehouse or wealthy homeowner. It's also about community resilience and grid support. To spread the cost of microgrids, the multi- multiple values of microgrids to the specific site, utility, and community need to become embedded in policy and ultimately in tariffs. As of April 2021, and according to microgrid knowledge, lawmakers in 20 U.S. states have introduced 69 microgrid-related bills in legislatures. This has been driven by the need for grid modernization, energy resilience, and by extreme weather events, fires, floods, heat waves, and cold plunges. The Clean Coalition reports that microgrid proceedings are underway in California that support solar-powered microgrids, but so far only for individual customers. Barriers aside, there's great proof that there's lots going on in the microgrid space. Asmus points to incredible technological advances in the 11 years that he's been tracking microgrids. Solar costs are way down. Storage costs are following a similar trajectory. Controls have dramatically advanced. Asmus says that they're the key technology to making microgrids work, orchestrating sophisticated energy management protocols. So. Are we inching along or are we charting a radically different power course? Perhaps some of each. To fully attain the value of microgrids based on currently available technology, we need to move faster. No more mobile generators, more bugs. Mostly diesel to respond to climate-induced harsh realities and PSPS events. We need clean energy resilience. We need modular and carbon-free solutions, easy to permit and to interconnect. We need to be able to finance these systems, and their values for energy-as-a-service and resilience-as-a-service. San Francisco's Hydrogen Ferry. Switch Maritime will shortly operate the world's first commercial vessel powered solely by hydrogen fuel cells. Its vessel is currently undergoing trials ahead of its planned passenger operations in the San Francisco Bay Area. The ferry, named Sea Change, is a 70-foot, 75-passenger catamaran they will have the same operational capabilities as conventional diesel-powered ferries, but with zero emissions and lower maintenance costs. SeaChange has 246 kilograms of onboard hydrogen storage. The hydrogen is used in fuel cells to generate electricity, which in turn is used to power a pair of 300 kW 402 horsepower, electric motors. The ferry has a range of 300 miles and a top speed of 23 miles per hour. Its fuel cells were developed by Cummins, Best known for its diesel engines, Cummins is promoting hydrogen fuel cell semi-trucks. Highways that charge EVs. How far out is this concept? A German startup company, Magment GmbH, is working to make highways that charge electric vehicles as they pass over. Coils are embedded in concrete. Now the Indiana Department of Transportation, INDOT, along with Purdue University, will bring the technology to America. Indot will bury electric cables in its roadways. Cars will be fitted with a receiver coil to pick up the charge as they go along. The actual testbed will be a quarter mile of pavement. Testing will involve large trucks that draw upwards of 200 kW. There are a number of similar charging technologies. An Israeli startup, Electrion, has demonstrated a wireless charging system on a short stretch of Swedish highway. The company also began testing its technology on a bus route in Tel Aviv. In 2017, Qualcomm showed off hardware that charged a small van as it traveled at 60 miles per hour. In related news, Sweden has electric rails on some highways that allow the largest vehicles to charge by way of an electric arm from their undercarriage that draws power from the rail. Siemens is building a scaffolding of cables and wires above a three-mile stretch of road outside Frankfurt a similar system to city trams. German coal plant closes really early. In June of 2021, the 1600 megawatt Moorberg hard coal, black coal power station in Hamburg was closed down for good just six years after it began operations. Moorberg became operational in 2015 and was one of the most modern stations in Germany. How did this happen? Usually coal plants run for 40-plus years. Under German law, the Coal Exit Law, all coal plants in the country must be shuttered by 2038. There is a shorter timeline for the closure of lignite, brown coal stations. To reduce generation with hard coal, the government is auctioning incentives for early retirement in the tender scheme. In the first German auction, companies operating coal-fired power plants were asked to hand in bids for a total of 4 gigawatts of capacity to be phased out. In December of 2020, the Federal Network Agency announced that both units at Moorburg had been awarded the contract in the first auction process. Vattenfall, the plant's owner, had experienced a drop in profits from the plant as the price of CO2 emissions under the European Emissions Trading System, the EU ETS, had been rising. Vattenfall had stopped operating the plant in 2020, and it served only as a backup reserve. Vattenfall calculated that the decommissioning compensation was greater than generation values at the plant. Vattenfall successfully competed in the decommissioning tender for payment in return for the early shutdown. Some experts note that taking older stations out of service would have resulted in greater emissions reductions, perhaps. But Vattenfall now plans a hydrogen plant at the site, turning offshore wind into green hydrogen. Meanwhile, Vattenfall's last coal plant in the Netherlands, the 650-megawatt Hemweg 8 facility, will be closed by year-end. Reportedly, Vattenfall sees no future for coal. The company will be fairly compensated through Dutch law, which has also phased out coal. That plant's closure will be five years earlier than planned. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time. <music>